0: This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. I'm pleased to have back with us uh, Dr. John Mann and Kelly Posner to continue the fascinating discussion that we're having about the tragic subject of suicide and how it continues to be a public health crisis that our society struggles with. Dr. Mann, just to refresh your memory, is the Janssen Professor of Psychiatry and Translational Neuroscience at Columbia. And Dr. Posner is a, a professor of psychiatry and the developer with colleagues at Columbia of the eponymous Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which is the standard instrument that's used for assessment in most uh, emergency rooms and healthcare institutions around the country. So, John Kelly, thanks for coming back and continuing this important discussion. So the conditions that you mentioned that are antecedents for suicide, the biggest by far is mood disorders, which is bipolar unit disorder. And we have a whole number of antidepressants. We have a whole number of mood stabilizers that we know work in 70 to 80% of people. So presumably suicide is preventable if people get treatment, to your point that most people don't, they don't come forward, they're embarrassed. And our fearless leader mentioned that he wonders if there's doing more harm than good, but aside from that, is it also possible that uh, it's not
1: just an access to care, it's a quality of care issue? Oh, quality of care definitely makes a difference. But um, Kelly made a, an important point. Um, most people, most adults um, who are depressed, for example, um, go, get their treatment from non-psychiatrists. Uh, there aren't enough psychiatrists to treat all the depression in this country, nothing, nowhere near enough. And we have way more than most other countries. Um, So it's really our colleagues who are GPs, internists, OBGYN. These are the individuals that see all these patients. Pediatricians. Pediatricians um, who are depressed and they have to make that diagnosis. Uh, To make that diagnosis you have to ask some questions about um, depression and you have to look at the person in front of you and see how they seem to be feeling and then use the medication in a way that works. We've shown Um, statistically, and um, in our research, that the better you treat the depression, the lower the risk of suicide. They're directly proportional to each other. If you get the person completely better, you will pretty much eliminate the risk of suicide. People who are are, are feeling cheerful and not depressed, don't think about suicide, don't want to commit suicide, etc. If you get them half better, then you're only doing half the job. Non-psychiatry colleagues um, need training as well to learn how to treat depression more effectively. All of those things will make a difference. In those places where this kind of work has been done, where people have been trained, non-psychiatrists have been trained to diagnose and treat depression better, there have been benefits in terms of reducing suicide rates.
2: And I just wanted to add to that for one moment that it's, it's diagnosing and asking about depression but also asking about suicidal issues directly. We've seen very clearly with asking a few simple questions of, related to suicide, people have literally lowered the suicide rate in full states and et cetera because we're connecting the people who are at highest risk to the care that they need.
0: Don't be afraid to ask. It's actually helpful, not harmful. Now, suicide... Exists, I mean, occurs mainly in the context of specific type of preexisting disorders, mood disorders first and foremost. Um, but not everybody who's depressed or uh, bipolar attempts or commits suicide. Um, so where's that additional vulnerability
1: coming from, and how do you identify it? Two key questions, really. Um, so there's something different. Um, uh, some people have a predisposition to uh, suicide. And when they get a a mood disorder, a depressive illness or substance use disorder or something like that, that kind of brings out this predisposition. Um, If they don't have the predisposition, but they do have the mood disorder, they may be relatively resilient and protected from suicide, which is why the majority of individuals with a mood disorder never make a suicide attempt. So what's different about this subgroup? Well, the subgroup seems to be prone to um, an array of, diff- of things. First of all, they seem to um, experience the depression subjectively as much more painful. The second thing is the sort of person that's more likely to act on their feelings. How they make decisions, this is a pattern in their lives, is different to other people. They may- they're more likely to, if they feel intensely suicidal and life is um, very painful emotionally, they're more likely to act on those feelings. Um, And then there are um, other differences in terms of um, uh, the way they solve problems and read social cues. Now, young people tend to overvalue negative social cues. They feel adults are more critical and less helpful than some objective person looking from the outside might think. That's why when you're having a conversation with your teenager, they're hypersensitive to any criticism you might have to make, and they're not very. Um, they don't seem to en- engage very much when you say, some, say, say something positive, like, um, "Well, wow, that was a great, you know, result on your report card," or, or "You know, what a nice um, shirt you're wearing." Um, they just brush that off um, as crap. But if you say anything like, you know, um, you know, why are you out so late and don't you have an exam to prepare for or something and they clean your room, you know, they get really upset. So the reading of social signals has a very big effect. Some people are more sensitive to bullying than others. That's why bullying is a risk factor for suicidal behaviour, but it's a much bigger risk factor in some people than it is in other people.
2: And people who have this tendency or brain-based illness, when you combine that with a stressful life event, like loss of a job or a breakup with a boyfriend or a divorce, then they're more likely to be at risk for ending their life.
0: So just to uh, extend uh, the take-home message, messages that uh, we've been articulating, um, suicide is not a new phenomenon. It's been with humankind forever, and it seems to be, despite... What should be the case, getting uh, more common in in our society. Secondly, people that commit suicide have some pre-existing mental disorder, most likely a mood disorder. Third, uh, the treatments that we have for these antecedent conditions are highly effective, but they have to be provided in the appropriate way and dose and so forth. And then not everybody who has a mood disorder is necessarily going to be uh, commit suicide. So there are certain things that have to be identified either through ultimately diagnostic tests, you know, genotyping, um, or just interviews like the uh, Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which is able to identify people to pick out of this broader group who are the... Inter- then the last point, now is that treatment works, but this treatment really has multiple stages of implementation. So if somebody has a mood disorder, you're trying to treat them either with an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer or some combination and prevent things from getting so bad that suicide might be a consideration. But while it's working, you've got to take steps to mitigate the risk. Even if you do do that, you stave off the crisis, you treat them they emerge from their condition, uh, they're euthymic, meaning emotionally normal, balanced, and they go on with their life, but experience other types of uh, challenges, stressful events, etc. maybe try and stop their medication, which allows for them to uh, have a, re- a recurrence. Take Robin Williams. When Ryan, Robin Williams committed suicide, which was every bit as shocking as any other celebrity suicide. You know, people, how could he do it? He's got everything. He's famous, he's brilliant, he's rich. Even with my relatively uh, unsophisticated knowledge, it seemed to me he was a walking risk factor. So what do you do with uh, individuals over the course of managing uh, their underlying mood disorder, their potential for suicidality acutely, and in terms of of how you would deal with these
1: higher risk uh, patients? We try to manage the uh, risk at the beginning very carefully because um, the highest risk for making a suicide attempt when you start somebody on antidepressants is right then. Um, if you have a look, actually, the highest risk was just before they came to see you. So uh, as soon as the patient has come to see somebody to seek help, the risk begins dropping, but it only begins dropping. So if you monitor risk from the moment they, they, they um, see the doctor, um, it looks like the first week with the doctor is the most dangerous week. But actually the first week, the, first, the highest risk week, was the week or two before they saw the doctor. So in, in Ben Carey would interpret that as don't see a doctor because it will increase your risk for suicide. Exactly. So people need to appreciate that. And then when you treat people with medications, um, and in fact even with psychotherapy, it doesn't work immediately. No, nothing works immediately really. But you just had a study that suggests. Well, except for potentially ketamine. That's an experimental treatment. I didn't ask that question, so right. go on. But in general, um, psychotherapies and antidepressants that we use to treat these patients don't work immediately. If it's a medication, all medications have some side effects. They may, not be, uh, they may be mild or they may be more uh, disturbing, but the patient at the beginning has all the side effects and none of the benefits. So that requires um, understanding working with the patient, having the family engaged to ne- negotiate this risky period un- until, they, um, until they show some improvement. And then when patients are depressed, one of the big problems is that they think they're never going to get better. That's part of depression, that kind of pessimism. And that feeds into their ideas about suicide. This is never going to get better. I'm never going to get better, uh, etc. What's the point? When they get better... Um, And then they have the opposite idea. They have the idea that they're never going to get sick again. So the incentive for going on taking the medication um, declines dramatically. So then you have kind of the opposite problem. You're trying to persuade them to take this medication that's that's done them so much good. In fact, the more it's helped them, the less they feel the need for it. Um, You you have to help them go on taking it. Um, People think they can resist the depression at that point in time. Well, you can't resist depression any anymore than you, you can resist the flu um, or, or mentally lower your blood pressure. You know, we don't have those capacities. We just feel like we have them. So while they're depressed, they're at risk. When they're cheerful, they're not at risk. And if they get depression again, and it's a recurrent condition, so a lot of people get it more than once, um, then they're gonna be at risk again. Um, and their family needs to help them recognize when the next episode is coming on them and encourage them to go and get help promptly instead of waiting. It's like
0: managing somebody who has you know, a chronic heart disease, uh, but it's not uh, simply we're managing one episode and then recovering and you're home free, and that gets to the point I was asking about the Robin Williams example of somebody who really chronically had ups and downs, was at risk, and it seems to me in instance like that you would be much more proactive at maintaining stability or trying to monitor somebody closely when they become unstable.
2: Well, and the very important thing to to note, as John said, is monitoring is just as important as screening, right? As medication is starting to work, we need to ask all the time to monitor that risk and when they get better, right? So these, I said, you know, 50% of suicides see their primary care doctor. That first time is not enough. We have to keep monitoring and
0: asking. Also, uh, I think in our discussion we've been emphasizing the necessity of medication, but that's not to say that uh, uh, it's simply giving a pill. You know, this is really disease management and uh, the need for uh, engagement with the patient, you know, assessing their status, Advising the family, monitoring, providing the necessary type of psychotherapeutic support is is, is essential to that. So I guess at the end of the day, despite the gloomy uh, events and statistics that precipitated this discussion, there's good news because basically this is a solvable problem.
2: Very good news.
0: The problem is that we just haven't been able to muster the social political will to uh, empower mental health professionals to, to do this, and it's a big job. But um, this has been a great discussion. I'm going to uh, sort of segue now in, in this to what I think would be a, a helpful uh, collaborator or participant uh, uh, in an effort to sort of address this ongoing mental public mental health problem of suicide, which is how do we inform or raise the awareness of the public to a greater degree, and how can the media be helpful in doing so? Joining us uh, in our discussion about suicide um, is Mr. Stephen Freed, who is a faculty member at the Columbia University uh, Journalism School and an adjunct professor in mental health journalism in the Columbia uh, Department of Psychiatry. So uh, welcome, Stephen, and uh, I think you're here to both uh, uh, sort of... Uh, enlighten us, but also maybe um, to uh, sort of defend your your trade and your your uh, the fourth estate that you're a, a professional member of, in terms of um, what it can do and maybe what it hasn't done sufficiently in terms of communicating information about mental illness in general and in this case in suicide. To begin, the way I would uh, frame it uh, is that John Kelly, myself, are uh, clinicians who treat patients and also do research on uh, disorders and uh, uh, factors that are directly mm-hmm. relevant to the occurrence of suicide. And um, not to brag, you know, Columbia a pretty good department and uh, these guys are all pretty successful. And so that's to say we know what we're doing. And we see suicide, even though it continues to be a top 10 cause of death and the rates are going up rather than down in the United States, um, uh, the problem is, is uh, the job isn't getting done, but it's not because we don't have the means and knowledge to do it. It's because uh, we're being constrained from being able to do it by the lack of a sufficient healthcare infrastructure and also the persisting stigma that exists, and lack of awareness on the part of the public. And that's where the media comes in. So how does the media think about mental illness in general, and so suicide in particular? And uh, is it is it doing as good a job as you could expect it to do?
3: Well, I'll answer your last question first. No, it's not doing as good a job as you would expect it to do. And, and that's partly because the job for the media is confusing as well. Um, you know, when you talk about a, a public health issue, which I think most journalists agree mental illness and suicide is, The other question is, what is a journalist's responsibility to a public health issue except to cover it when other people are doing something important? So there's a difference sometimes between what a journalist can cover and what a journalist can think. I think also it's hard to differentiate between articles that journalists write and op-ed pieces that experts write. Uh, which are all part of what you get in the media. Um, so there's a there's sort wait, of a writer's wait, 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 version wait, wait, wait. of this and an editor's version of this. Well,
0: first you're getting a little bit into inside baseball. But before I, we even uh, get there, I would say I would take issue with saying op-eds are written by experts. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see a lot well, of well,
3: op-eds are written by people who have credentials who got the assignment. Um, and, what, and so and, you know, and, one and, of the and, reasons and, that and, and,
0: and what credentials does Daphne Merkin have?
3: Well, that's really between you and Daphne Merkin. But um, <laughs> Daphne Merkin is uh, somebody who plead, the New I, York I, Times I, I, trusts.
0: I, I played HIPAA. Okay. L- now let me well, put, I mean, let, they, I let, would
3: say that, that, her, that the people who another... publish Daphne Merkin see her as someone with lived experience. Um, and uh, I would also probably agree with you that she gets called on probably more than I would like to see to be the spokesperson for people with lived experience. Whenever there are suicides, Um, Editors and journalists are put in a very challenging situation. Uh, One, very few of them are experts in mental health coverage. Um, Two, they're reliant on who they talk to. And three, um, after you say to the public, these are preventable illnesses, and most people who have them uh, have diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness, Mm -hmm. Uh, the question is, what else do you write? And as soon as you start broadening the conversation, letting people broaden the conversation, they start talking about what's wrong with society and all these kinds of things. So, uh, and they do this for a very te- for a very technical reason, because right right after somebody uh, takes their own life, the journalist generally knows very little detail. So the journalist, I think, would rather have more detail, but when they don't have more detail, they are forced to fill in with people's opinions. And people's opinions are wildly divergent. And the only guidance that journalists have gotten on these issues so far has been very specific, which is there are guidelines that were made up by certain groups that have to do with whether you describe the way someone took their life, which these guidelines are against. Um, There are guidelines having to do with how much you publicize, what words you use to to describe suicide, and whether you list uh, an 800 number at the end of your story to make sure that people can get help.
0: I think uh, you know. You alluded to what may be an important thing to realize. Uh, you're saying the journalists, when something happens, they have to decide: do they write about it, or how do they write about it? But it's really their editor that's telling them what to do. Um, so yes, is, and it, no. I, I mean, I will tell you,
3: being in the job, that that's there, there's wild divergence in that too.
0: But um, and and then you're saying that uh, apart from the obvious, like uh, the person that committed suicide probably has a pre-existing mental condition and uh, there are treatments for that condition that actually work. Uh, but that's old hat. Everybody knows that, so we can't just write about that. Um, really?
3: I think that you find that, those lines in most stories about this today. The question is, where do you find them? How prominent are they in the story? Because I'll give you a really technical, a, a, a very straightforward example. When you read a story about this, the question is, which idea of suicide is put forward first, and which one is put forward second as a counterargument? that influences the public a great deal. So if the first quote in a story comes from people who are talking about the big problem of meaninglessness in society and that's why people are killing themselves, and then later in the piece say, well, some biological psychiatrists like Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman say this is all, this is all uh, about undiagnosed mental illness, that story, while it has both perspectives in it, is real different than if the first thing you read in the story has to do with a very much a treatment prevention More biological psychiatric point of view, and what I'm saying is, look, I've written about this a lot. I don't think that my perspectives are in any way in question here, and I think they align with yours pretty closely. But what I also understand is that the job of a journalist to write a story um, is off. First of all, the journalists aren't supposed to be putting their own opinions in the story. They're supposed to be interviewing experts. Um, And on any given day, I can give you an expert who will tell you me exactly what you guys would say. Or somebody who would say, no, the big picture here is meaningless in society and additional pressure on people and blah, 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 and that person can have a degree too. So the journalist is in a difficult situation, which I do think we can help teach them how to do better, you know, but that, this is the kind of training that, that. that we haven't had so far because we need to have these conversations between journalists and their sources, not during emergencies. You know, Because during and, emergencies, and, and, there's different stuff going on.
0: In medicine, there's something called root cause analysis when something goes wrong with patient care or there's peer review to evaluate the quality of something. Because you say there's experts and there's experts. I mean, it's like uh, you know, moral or cultural relativism. Uh, I, I, I'm sitting here with two of the leading experts in the world who I'd put up against anybody. And uh, in their opinion, which I... Completely believe there's not a shadow of a doubt about <laughs> what they're saying. So what's what? What do you want for a counterargument? You know, like it's like saying we're, we're going to uh, we're, we're going to examine global warming, and uh, we'll do the scientific analysis about you know uh, greenhouse gases and uh, so forth and so on, and then we're going to have the uh, issue about oh, there's an asteroid that's going to hit us from the sun in ten thousand light years, and, and that's the cause of it. To the point on Sunday, June twenty third, the New York Times published a long article on suicides have increased. Is this an existential crisis? Written by a guy named Clay Routledge, who's listed as a behavioral scientist. So I I looked him up. He's on the faculty of the University of North Dakota, um, and. from what I could tell, because his CV isn't listed anywhere on the website or on, even on the university's website, where he, um, he's written a lot of stuff, which is um, to say, it's it's soft and qualitative uh, is 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 to be to be generous. These are opinions. These are opinions with no data. How do you put that up against science and medicine?
3: I had a similar reaction to that piece, and I think that. Uh, in the New York Times, which is very much the paper of record for a lot of things in science, uh, what's unfolded really is a situation where if the same subject is treated in the science section, it's treated more scientifically than it is in the Sunday opinion section. And I think that that's a fair point. I've heard people make it for years. And the question is how to make the point in a way that will uh, produce change. I mean, you mentioned the idea of peer review in journalism. Um, And I think that that is something that's important. And just like in medicine, where peer review has to be done doctor to doctor, uh, I think peer review has to be done journalist to journalist. We have started doing some of it, and I hope to bring more of this to the project that we're doing, but it's challenging. Um, But it has to be done, uh, because what's surprising is there are people who are writing stories that actually probably agree with everything that you just said, but when their stories get done and edited, the stories don't reflect that. That can be because of editors who are closed-minded. It can be just because of the way the headlines are written. You know, It can be, a, very, it can be a, a really accurate story with a terrible headline. Um, but I think that, that we need to ask these questions, but we need to ask them in a way that will improve the quality of, of, of the journalism um, and not just uh, say it is predictably bad. Because you know what? Everything in mental health and all our policy issues have been predictably challenged for a really long time.
1: So I have a question for you, though. But um, um, this is John Mann. Um, okay. We get um, we do a lot of interviews with different um, reporters. If um, if Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain had died of um, melanoma or some kind of cancer, and it turned out that they um, had not been treated, um, that would produce a kind of a storyline. Um, about um, the importance of treatment. And um, we're often, it's not, not unusual, we're asked by reporters, well, there's a huge number of antidepressant prescriptions written in the United States every year, and it's been going up for decades. Um, don't you think they're overused, that, that people's response to troubles in their lives and um, issues is to go out and get an antidepressant? Um, and, you know, I, I asked them, do you, th- do you ever uh, address the same question to people who are physicians who are treating diabetes, that, you know, the use of um, uh, dr- drugs for diabetes has been going up and the use of insulin has been going up? Um, d- do you think that we should be um, um, uh, stopping this or putting a cap on this? All, all, uh, all the while, the rates
0: of type 2 diabetes and obesity are going up, too.
1: Exactly. The need exists.
3: The answer to your question, I've been in this journalistic situation myself, and I've been in a journalistic situation where I was interviewing uh, an expert who was telling me the thing that you're telling me that that you shouldn't be thinking. So what I would say is this. It is often important in an interview situation for somebody to uh, raise these issues and to have some information. And a lot of that information we need to better get to journalists again when they're not in the throw of interviews so that they can you know, I, I have been in interviews where I've had to say to somebody exactly what you just said, you know, that you may have read the story in the paper about antidepressant uses wildly over, but th- there's no factual basis to that, and that's not what we're talking about here. Um, people hold opinions that are not very well informed. The journalist's goal is to not allow them to be put out there again without being critical. Um, but here's the other thing: A lot of people hold those opinions. So the question is, do we include them in the story and then try to undermine them with facts? Do we avoid them in the story because we don't want to proliferate them? Um, It is challenging, but I would say that the people who I know who cover mental illness often and who cover the pharmaceutical business often all understand that. Um, At the same time, they are writing to an audience. They're not writing to an audience. They know that they have a reading audience who are prejudiced against care. I mean, the basic idea of care and some of the things that are used for care, especially pharmaceuticals, are are controversial to people in a way that it continues to be astonishing.
2: And that's part of the stigma and misunderstanding that we have to correct. And I think journalists and editors, we have a responsibility to make sure they're educated more and they have a responsibility to be fully informed. And I think the second issue is that we have to together, be more creative. I can think of many dramatic ways with many wonderful hooks to, to tell the story we're telling in the media. And I think we have to work together to, to do that in, in, a, in a much more cogent way.
3: I agree. And I'll take it a step further. You have to be willing to insult the journalists who are asking you questions if they're really asking you questions that they don't understand or biased.
1: Um, so, well, I mean, you, I, I, you as journalists have a limited bandwidth in terms of communication with the public. It seems to me that, um, that there would be a huge outcry if cancers were grossly undertreated, if hypertension was grossly undertreated and people were having strokes and heart attacks as a result. Um, instead of spending so much time analysing Donald Trump's tweets, <laughs> to devote more time in a, pro- in a sort of planned fashion to addressing public health things that really matter. Um, And we have this enormous death rate due to suicide and the government's not doing enough about it. This is low hanging fruit. Yes, go for it. Um, Do something Right, but But I understand, but keep in mind that
3: the, the journalists are not the cause of all the decisions the government make and all the social pressure. So I don't disagree with what you just said. I disagree with the notion that a journalist in a story can fix that.
0: It's really the fourth estate. Uh, that is the problem, that it's not stepping up and doing what it should. And and I know why, and, and here's the reason. Uh, it's because um, at the end of the day, you're trying to get eyes on the article, eyes on the paper, readers to buy this, to buy that, to view a program, and there's an economic tension of how you do that without necessarily hewing to Putting forward what is the most uh, important information. You got to make it interesting, and you got to appeal to what the, their pre-existing beliefs are. I get that. We can't do that. At least I can't. We're pointy-headed scientist types. Um, you guys, right. got, you guys got to do it. But they're, they're, and, and I think that we can teach journalists they're,
3: they're, they're, how to do that well, better because you know what? It's, it's, it's a not, lot it, of it's, mental it's, health stories.
0: It's not a teach. It's not a teaching how to do. It. I would say that most of you or colleagues know what the right thing to do is. They just don't, they have to put on their, like, moral pants to, to do it. Um, and, you know, the, the analogies that John was describing about how completely hypocritical it is to treat suicide just because they can get away with it. You know, the public has all these vague notions about what mental illness is, what psychiatry is, how you treat it, and where suicide comes in. But it could never happen with cancer, It could never happen with heart disease. It could never happen with diabetes, but they can get away with it with this. And so you get this crap that's published about existential crisis, which is like complete red herring in this case. Anyway,
3: Well, let me make two points. One, there's a lot of crap written about uh, uh, alternative treatments for cancer and heart disease, too, which get printed. So it's not just that.
0: Not not in the New York Times editorial page.
3: Not on the editorial page, but certainly in the science section. But to, to me, the, the broader issue is this. Part of the, part of the to type of teaching that we've tried to do with the J School and that I've done other, where, other places is to try to show journalists how the best stories can be informed by everything you're talking about, be evidence-based, and be really dramatic and interesting. Um, and we try to bring in the journalists who have succeeded in doing that, which is hard. Um, it is challenging because the truth is, a lot of the kinds of stories that people want to read, that people from the field want us to write, they aren't interesting, they just have the advocacy message in them. But those stories are advocacy, and they're not necessarily interesting to read. So the challenge is, how do you make sure that, that, the, that the evidence base is there, but it's a story that you, if you weren't an expert in this field, would read? Because that's the only way that you make people understand the challenges of having mental illnesses. Treating mental illnesses and dealing with a term that, I mean, I don't use the word stigma anymore because I was taught by the people that I've been doing advocacy work around more recently that we should use the term discrimination um, because stigma is a word that is too soft and lets people off the hook.
0: I think uh, the terminology aside, it it ultimately does become a social justice issue. But the point is, is that I think what we've tried to do in this uh, podcast is to uh, deconstruct suicide into what it is is basically uh, a phenomenon that uh, is preventable uh, in terms of knowing who's at risk and what we can do, uh, and in order to be able to enact an effective public health strategy, um, the media and particularly, you know, credible journalism uh, has an important role to play. So we thank you. Uh, before signing off, I just want to also mention that Stephen uh, has a book that'll be coming out. Uh, when is it going to come out?
3: September 4th.
0: September 4th, 2018, which is a, uh, a, a detailed authoritative biography of um, Benjamin Rush, who was the uh, most prominent physician in colonial the United States and also the kind of father of of mental health care in the United States. Well, I see that uh, uh, we've easily uh, come to the end of our time and could go on for more, but uh, uh, I want to thank you for really a fascinating discussion that's important and I hope will uh, be listened to by a lot of people.
1: It's our pleasure. Thank you. Grateful for the opportunity. This is Dr.
0: Jeffrey Lieberman, and this was Shrink Speak.